Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. On the weekend, the Victorian state government announced a $16.8 million arts survival package for the creative industries, which, as you would have known from listening to this program or indeed just talking to your friends in the the cultural sector, the arts have been hit hard by coronavirus. Artists across the state and indeed across the country um, are looking at months without income as theatres have closed, galleries have closed, concert halls, live music venues and more have closed. As we try to stop the spread of the coronavirus. So this package uh, announced on the weekend by Martin Foley MP, the Minister for Creative Industries, is a significant investment in artists in this state. The Minister joins us on the line now. Uh, Minister, in terms of uh, the money that has been uh, put into this uh, survival package, let's begin with the fact that $15.2 million of this $16.8 million is new money. That's a significant investment in the future of the sector here in Victoria in order to get artists and organisations through the next few months. That's exactly right, Richard. Um, without any shadow of a doubt, this is the biggest crisis that the creative community in our nation has faced, uh, certainly, I suspect, in our collective lifetimes. Um, When you turn off the lights and close the venues and shut up shop necessarily to stop the spread of the virus and save our health system and save lives, you have an immediate impact on the creative community. The Australian Bureau of Statistics in their initial report by the end of March pointed out that uh, uh, only 40% of creative organisations were still trading at that point of time. The Grattan Institute a week or so ago, a month down the track, pointed that that figure had reached well into the 70s. So without doubt, this is the sector that has been amongst the hardest and the earliest hits. And with but if there is an easing of social distancing rules, the, the, pro, the prospect of this sector being amongst the last to be eased is also a reality that we have to confront. So faced with that and then some difficulties federally with the uh, JobKeeper program and its application to the precarious nature of employment in this sector... Uh, there was the need for us to act. And um, most of this money, in fact, um, $15.2 million worth of it is new money, and we want to make sure that it gets into organisations and onto creatives right across the state before the end of the financial year. Uh, and that's precisely what we're going to do. Let's break this uh, kind of fund down into its component parts. So there's a $13 million strategic investment fund, which will be uh, provided to small to medium companies across the sector, uh, festivals such as the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and Melbourne Fringe. What's the aim of uh, of the strategic investment fund? Is this to supply cash flow for organisations so that they can pay staff wages for the next few months, for example? For example, that's that's right. But what we were facing was those organisations, nearly 100 organisations right across the state, festivals, uh, organisations, big, small, uh, 
at some of the local galleries, uh, community arts centres, many, many different organisations were facing a crisis of income and solvency. Many were going to face insolvency unless we acted. But these are not just organisations that do employ quite a large number of people in their own right, but they, through them, engage many, many thousands of creatives. Take, for instance, the Footscray Community Arts Centre, a critical organisation in the cultural life of the west of Melbourne. It employs 30 full-time staff, but through them, it engages every year over 500 artists in work. And in 2019, they topped over a million dollars out to artists, mostly in and around the western suburbs. So we wanted to make sure that when we spoke to them, that their work, yes, they are eligible for JobKeeper, but the uh, many 500 of the artists that they work with each year aren't. So uh, in that, that example, we want to make sure that their exciting digital projects, their, their work of paying artists to develop um, pieces of work for a hopeful recovery could be done. So we want, and, and there was similar examples right across the state. Last weekend was meant to be the Clunes Booktown Festival, uh, a, a small town that thrives on the issue around books and literature and ideas once every year. Um, that clearly didn't happen. That organisation needs to be sustained. So when the book festival we plan to return in 2021 is able to sustain its engagement with writers, thinkers, and keep its organisation together. La Mama, Comedy Festival, Heidi, Ballarat International Photo Biennale, uh, Indigenous um, theatre groups, uh, Bajira Theatre, Kaila Arts in Shepparton. We've got to make sure they keep their doors open so they can engage in different ways with the different creative communities that depend on them uh, to keep body and soul together. Because this is a real crisis of unprecedented proportions that we have to fill a gap that um, that is needed. We know that more is going to be to be done. We know that this really only can be seen as a down payment to get us through the crisis. Uh, because we don't know where the finishing line is here uh, and we've just got to keep working hard with the sector to build and maintain capacity and the creative engagement so we have the ability to come back uh, when social distancing rules start to ease. Now, Minister, you just used the phrase, more needs to be done. I wanted to segue for a moment to uh, an issue raised by the uh, the chair of the Victorian Association of, the Perf- of Performing Arts Centres, who said that uh, yes. this funding package doesn't go far enough and that regional performing arts centres and their staff, many of whom are employed by local government and who are also eligible for JobKeeper, that this package does not include them and so uh, the future of the touring sector in Victoria is consequently at risk. What's your answer uh, to to that issue? Uh, is there more funding in the pipeline, for example, to help with that aspect of the, the cultural ecology? Uh, yes, the Victorian Association of Performing Arts Centres are correct. Uh, the, many of whom those centres are 
local government's uh, partnerships and local government was excluded from the job keeper arrangements. So we're in talks right across, particularly with local governments, um, as the key partner here, uh, as to what could be um, arrangements in place. All levels of government need to step up here. Um, we've made an initial contribution. We do have plans that part of the uh, arrangements for innovation in marketing that were tucked away in this package were quite small contributions that might be able to provide uh, the performing arts centres, particularly in the regions, the ability to uh, have some content provided in them when the chance comes around. But we know that whether it's the lobbying with local governments, uh, whether it's with the various peaks, that the Commonwealth in particular needs to think about how it can uh, amend its very welcome JobKeeper program, but having excluded key groups uh, that are a part of the ecology of creativity, we know there's more to be done, and um, I'm hopeful that those conversations with local governments, with peaks, uh, and if the federal government wishes to engage, how we can all come together to support this, because it has to be government-led. Uh, no one else uh, has, to be frank about it, uh, the resources at hand, and if it's not government going to fill this space, frankly, in the crisis, who is going to fill this space? It's interesting comparing uh, the $16.8 million art survival package that uh, Victoria has is presenting compared to 20, just $27 million for the entire country, which is the federal government's uh, support package announced on the 9th of April. There's, uh, there's a bit of a disparity there, but it's great to see kind of Victoria taking such an initiative, given that we are such a creative state. To come back to the details of the art survival package that you announced on the weekend, Minister, um, a key part of it uh, is the a $2.2 million initiative sustaining creative workers, quick response grants for independent artists and micro-organisations. What do you mean by micro-organisations and how do you see this sustaining creative workers fund being used? Uh, so part of the problem with the JobKeeper program was that it assumes an employment status that is, or a work status that is completely uh, foreign to so much of the creative communities, uh, particularly in that rich, vibrant area that so much of the ecology relies on, small uh, organisations, sole traders, some of whom are covered, some of whom aren't, depending on what your relationship with different festivals or different art forms are. Far too many, however, are particularly mid-career and established uh, creatives from all sorts of walks of uh, the economic, the creative ecology were missing out. Uh, and that five-year practice qualification uh, guidelines we felt was an important benchmark to target a particular group that was going really hard in, in the past six weeks. I just point out that uh, as of nine o'clock this morning, the detailed criteria and we hope very simple application form for that fund is now on the Creative Victoria website. 
So I would encourage anyone listening who falls into that category to download that and get it in as soon as possible. These are about turning the money around now to get people into a position where they are producing new works, where they are developing new ideas, that they are uh, getting on and keeping both body and soul together, but keeping their creative practice together. Uh, so when social distancing starts to ease, we're in a position to come back. It'll be a very different world, but we want to make sure as many of our creative community uh, are able to come back when the circumstances allow. Does that include the live music sector? I understand that uh, Peak Body Music Victoria recently yeah. tabled a $70 million live music rescue package, and certainly there's been talk from uh, music venue owners talking about the need for specific and targeted support for their venues post-lockdown. Yes, um, uh, not directly, although we did bring forward as... Uh, some of the music works grants, uh, which were going to be a few months down the track, forward uh, to be part of this package. Now, the difficulty it was actually a $50 million bailout bid for venues that um, the industry put together there. It's a little bit tricky, but we're uh, hopeful that we'll be able to have some kind of broader discussion with uh, the music sector and again with other levels of government. Victoria is the live music capital of the world by the number of venues per head of population, and Melbourne is the epicentre of that. Uh, the bailout proposition that the sector has put is a little bit tricky for the principles of what this fund is about. This fund's this um, $16.8 million is about sustaining creatives and the vast bulk of it goes to community-based, non-government and not-for-profit organisations. Many of these um, venues, quite rightly, are for-profit um, businesses, yet they are the uh, hotbed of particularly live music. So we're looking to how can we, in addition to the wider program of support that we've bought for businesses for... Uh, tax and land tax and other relief um, programs, we're thinking about quite quite a lot about how can we develop a targeted program that keeps through the venues, the musicians, the techs, the roadies who rely on those venues for income as opposed to the for-profit business. That's not to say that they, the for-profit businesses don't have a legitimate claim, but it's caught up within the wider rubric of what do we do to sustain so many businesses that are doing it hard across the state, given the Treasury projections are that we're going to see uh, somewhere between a 9 to 14% contraction of economic activity over the rest of this year, and that's going to have a massive impact on the wider economy, of which uh, these venues are a key part. Add to that that they've been really hard hit by the social distancing rules, and we know that there's more to be done. My job is to make sure that we target whatever support we bring directly to those creatives and to those musicians. 
Well, I will certainly look forward to hearing more about any kind of targeted support program for the live music industry, as I'm sure will many of our peers and colleagues. I've been speaking with the Honourable Martin Foley MP, Minister for Creative Industries. If you want details of the uh, art survival package and other funding programs that we've been discussing, jump online, creative.vic.gov.au. Minister, thank you very much for joining us at Triple R this morning. Thank you very much, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I'm joined on the line by artist Mark Schuller, who joins us to chat about Botanicus Fantasticus, a new body of work being presented by Fox Galleries. Mark, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. Now, when I first heard about this exhibition, my initial thought was, oh, fantastic paintings of botany and I immediately, I must admit, I had a slightly conservative response because I tend to think of botanical paintings as a very, a fairly staid and traditional form of art making. Then, however, I actually looked at your work uh, and was delighted to see that all my preconceptions had been thrown out the window. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a Latin student, but I, I kind of, I liked the title. I liked, um, you know, that it doesn't really rhyme, but it sort of seems as though it might. But, uh, yeah, the, the work came out of visiting the Botanic Gardens, pretty much. What was it about the gardens that gave you such inspiration to create a series of work? Well, it really came out of necessity. I didn't have a studio at the time, and I thought I'll go somewhere I want to go to, and I started, I started doing a lot of drawings in there, and you know, one thing led to another, and um, I then it it sort of became an exhibition. Now, as I said, when I first thought about the exhibition, I, I, I used the word stayed and that kind of kind of very formal botanical tradition, whether it's botanical illustration or still life of flowers in a vase, for example. Your works are popping kind of off the, the website that I'm looking at now. If people go to foxgalleries.com.au uh, and... We're talking about um, paintings, oil on linen, for example, but there's also uh, some sculptural works there as well. So talk to us about kind of the, the creative process and how you've ended up with such a broad array of works, both two-dimensional and three-dimensional. Um, often if I'm working on a painting and I'm not sort of getting anywhere with it, I just I make a sculpture and I can solve the problem or the what I'm working on with the picture isn't what I'm thinking about, and then I, I just do something different. And, you know, working with your hands in a sculpture, and then it exists and it's in a three-dimensional state and you can... Um, you get all sorts of alternative ideas about, about the painting. So one informs the other. So it's an opportunity. So when you're grappling with a creative idea, I love the. the I've, I know writers who do that quite often. If they're they're mm -hmm. stuck on a particular point in a novel, they'll they'll go off and write a poem or a short story, for example. Is it? Yeah. Is there something about the fact that I might try that? That's a good idea. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious to know what it is that that then frees up your creativity when you can move from kind of if a painting's not working and if you go to a sculpture to, to make something or vice versa, kind of what is it about that process? Is it just the fact that you've not abandoned one project but you're letting the problem go and letting it sink back into yeah. your subconscious so you can grapple with it 
in a kind of without having to spend all that labour and detail over it. Is, does it yeah. free you up? And the fact that you're then also jumping from one medium to another. Is there something about letting one medium go and, and responding to the challenge of another that then frees up your subconscious to, to think about a creative solution to the other issue that was troubling you? I think that's what it is. It's a solution. But I really rely on drawing a lot, and I think drawing is the key. And, uh, you know, the opera house started as a little drawing on a napkin, apparently. But everything around us, you know, all the things we have, your car or anything, started with a little drawing. And then it was, you know, it was worked upon and it was different ideas come into it to, to turn it into something that's, you know, functional or that it will exist and it will be refined to the point by the time you get it there. But the initial drawings are... What's sort of inspiring, and uh, you know, it comes from that. It's really drawing, and I suppose writers might do that too. They might have, you know, different sorts of constructions or ways they might think about constructing words to form sentences or make something tangible. There's certainly something about the, the notion of a sketch, whether it's a, a brief sketch in words to outline an idea or a, a brief pencil sketch to try and begin exploring a creative idea. Looking That's at... right, and it's a metaphor too, isn't it? You say, you know, you'll sketch it out in your mind or something like that, so... And certainly looking at uh, the artwork on the Fox Gallery's website, you can see that kind of sketching idea at play in some of the works, like uh, the work Bats 2019, which is watercolour and ink on paper. Uh, you're capturing the sense of the gardens and it feels like an idea kind of... Uh, it's, it's a fully formed and completed artwork, but you can see that it's, it, it feels like it's begun as an idea that you're grappling with and playing with and then as those works expand, kind of uh, uh, becoming later more complex paintings, which you can still, again, see the, the idea of the sketch at play underlying or underpinning the work, but then... Uh, kind of it's uh, as if you've breathed out creatively to create more complex works uh, such as some of the, the still lives or the botanical heads or uh, the figures created out of flowers and leaves. Well, I think that's terrific. And, uh, yeah, I was sort of keeping myself amused with it all and I wasn't being precious about it and I was letting it, um, you know, have a life of its own in a way and and trying to keep it as alive as I possibly could. You know, a lot of the paintings have an underpainting that's quite vivid and, and the paint is, you know, I'm letting it breathe and have its own liberty or its own freedoms, which is, I don't know, sort of something I've been trying to do for a long time. Now, in terms of this body of work, as you said, kind of inspired by and drawing on uh, the kind of Royal Botanical Gardens here in Melbourne. The exhibition, uh, for those of you who missed the start of our conversation, is called Botanicus Fantasticus and is showing from uh, from uh, the 1st of May until the 1st of July. Jump online. The artworks are actually up now on the Fox Gallery's website. But were you painting kind of outdoors, uh, kind of uh, yeah, in plain air? I, yeah, I do, a, I do a lot of plain air painting and I really enjoy that and you know, often you're looking in one direction and what you really want to paint is behind you. I think Corot said that. But, uh, you know, you're in amongst whatever it is and you get the, you know, the feeling of it is it's sort of with you because you're immersed in it. And and uh, often I'll go for a walk and um, I'll come back and um, it'll be as though I've been in a kind of a, 
when you walk around, you think of all sorts of things and you're in a kind of a sort of dreamlike state, I suppose, to a bit. And then the journey can be um, recorded and in drawings or in paintings or, you know, you might just get inspired by walking around. Uh, in terms of uh, the difference between plain air painting and then going back to the studio to finish or finesse a work, how difficult mm. is it to then finish a work off in the studio sometimes, given that it was inspired by a particular place, the, the play of light yeah. on a leaf, the, a, a flower <laughs> dancing in the breeze? <laughs> Very poetic. Well, that's the thing. Often they come back into the studio and I, I leave them for a long time because I don't know what to do with them because I'm not in that... Um, in the environment any longer and I'll rework them or maybe I'll go back to the place but rarely do I do that. I usually go to another place. Now, uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about your work, even though obviously there's this botanical theme running through the in entire body of work, there's also a very strongly humanistic uh, element as well. Many of mm. these paintings are depicting figures, uh, whether mm. made of leaves and flowers or kind mm. of, uh, more obviously peering through a landscape uh, or walking through a landscape. How important is it to have this kind of human element, a human, a hint of a human story to your work? Well, I've always painted figurative paintings, and in a way I think I'm terrified of losing the figure because I've seen it happen to a lot of artists, and they, you know, they lose the figure, and it's really difficult to get back to the figure once you've decided to disregard it. And I go, you know, I used to go a lot to life drawing classes, and and I'm kind of, um, I'm very inspired by 20th century figurative painting. And uh, it's really, I love figurative painting and I like narrative painting and I like, um, you know, focus painting. They're things I like and I'm trying to, you know, I sort of have a language or trying to get a visual language to go with it. If you want to jump online, as I said, you can see the exhibition that we're discussing, uh, Mark Schaller's Botanicus Fantasticus at Fox Galleries. It's a shame, Mark, that you won't get to have the traditional opening night gallery kind of drinks and celebration and speeches given the, uh, the current situation we're all living in. But nonetheless, it must be... Um, uh, you must be happy to agree knowing that even though people can't physically go to the gallery, the work is actually still accessible and available because it is all online. Yes, I love that. And I know you're robbed of the actual experience of seeing a painting, which is really, really important as well, I think. To stand in front of a picture and, and converse with it in a way is... Uh, but the gallery, you know, opened by appointment and there's different ways and I'm certain, that, you know, in the future um, all galleries will be open again. <laughs> They will, give it time. So, yes, the fact that uh, from tomorrow, the 1st of May, uh, you can contact Fox Galleries, particularly if you've looked at a work online and it's caught your eye, uh, you can make an appointment, go to the gallery and actually see the work, well, I was going to say in the flesh, not you can be there in the flesh <laughs> rather than virtually. But, Mark, you're right, that opportunity to actually see the, the texture of paint on canvas, to kind of look at a work from different angles, kind of looking at, at work online gives you a, an impression of the piece, but there's nothing like mm. actually seeing it 
with your own eyes in a gallery space. So foxgalleries.com.au, you can contact the gallery uh, to make an appointment to go in and look at the work. Or uh, you can browse online if uh, you just want to get kind of an impression of Mark's work. Mark, thank you very much for joining us on Triple R this morning and uh, please enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Richard. Triple R. Now we're going to talk orchestral music. I'm joined on the line by Chris Howlett, who's the co-director of Melbourne Digital Concert Hall, an initiative that kicked off in March, very quickly responding to the need to create income for Melbourne's many classically trained musicians. Uh, within just a couple of weeks of launching, um, I do I understand, Chris, that you'd raised over $35,000 for musicians just within the first couple of weeks in March. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And yes, that's correct. Uh, we went from uh, $30,000 in the first week. We've now been, this is our fourth week of, of trading, shall we say. And as of this morning, I can say that we've now raised $120,000. That's fantastic. Given that uh, orchestras around the country are being kind of suspended, put on leave, furloughed. Uh, There's a a clear need for uh, musicians, classically trained musicians, to have some kind of income coming in. So the opportunity to not only develop an income, but the opportunity to play for an audience is such a key part of it as well, because all artists, regardless of their art form, gain such fulfilment and joy from being able to create and make work. So the opportunity that uh, you and your colleague are providing through the, uh, the the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall for live performances to be streamed into people's homes so the audiences, so the artists can play, that's uh, probably worth just as much as the money itself, if not more. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, there, there, are, t- there are really three elements to the Digital Concert Hall um, first of all, and foremost, of course, there is the need for people to be able to, you know, pay their rent and put food on the table for both themselves and, you know, many of them have children or families, you know, so for, for that was, you know, if you're an orchestral player, um, you know, going from, a, you know, a, a six-figure salary down to a job keeper 750 a week is obviously a a huge jump, or for the casual musician, even you know where it's, you've literally gone down to zero. Um, so that was level. That was like the first number one. The second one, which is, as you just touched on, equally as important, is that mental health element. Because as musicians, we need that. You know, we we want to share our artistry, and so for many people, when they lost everything, they were like, "Well, why do I even need to practice?" You know, what's the point? And then to be able to give them, a, you know, a live performance again for an audience, even if it is a digital audience, then that sort of meant, you know, a number of my colleagues went, well, now I'm not just, not just endlessly playing scales. I've got a reason to get the cello out or the violin out, you know, every morning. And then the third is actually the other way. You know, it is so important for so many people that, um, you know, socially concerts they may go to two three four concerts a week you know for all of a sudden for all the concert halls to get closed and for them to and basic you know and them to be told that they must stay at home their social their, their isolation is compounded by the fact that they're missing that connection with the, the arts community and for many people that have been stuck at home you know this has been giving them at least on thursday and friday evenings 
a chance to reconnect with a, a level, I suppose, of normality in these crazy times. Now, one of the events that's coming up that Melbourne Digital Concert Hall are presenting, uh, running from the 1st until the 8th of May, an eight-night festival called Faces of Our Orchestras, which will be kind of turning the spotlight on the individuals who make up Melbourne's kind of diverse orchestral community. So, yes, the focus is on the music, but it's also on the musicians themselves. Tell us a little bit more about this eight-day celebration of symphonic artists. Yeah, absolutely. So starting tomorrow, um, as you said, eight nights, um, which is a first for us. Um, we normally just program on Thursdays and Friday evenings predominantly. We wanted to, obviously, over the last couple of weeks, there's been quite a lot of movement in what, particularly one of the orchestras. Um, and we wanted to celebrate, you know, a big part of the Melbourne arts scene is the symphonic world. And COVID-19 has affected all the musicians of, you know, the symphonic world as well, no matter if you're, you know, on Hamer Hall giving a concert as part of Melbourne Symphony in the pit for, you know, the ballet, or if you're part of Melbourne Chamber Orchestra and playing at, uh, you know, Melbourne Recital Centre or doing a lot of regional touring. So we wanted to showcase these. It was a great opportunity because, you know, obviously their schedules are very busy normally to showcase the musicians. And not we wanted to, you know, when I was programming it, I wanted not just to have the concert masters, although it's brilliant to have Dale Bartram and Sophie Rao from Melbourne Symphony, you know, um, Bill Hennessy uh, from Melbourne Chamber Orchestra and, of course, Yi Wang from Orchestra Victoria, but also showcase the, you know, the violinists who are maybe at the back of the second violins who are amazing musicians as well, or the lower brass, or, you know, the woodwinds that, you know, play amazingly as a unit, but don't often get the chance to have the spotlight. So, you know, it's a great, I suppose you always have to find a positive in a negative, and this is the opportunity, you know, opportunity for so many of these orchestral musicians to uh, give a recital and take the spotlight and show what they can do as an individual, not just as part of a, a 12, a 38, or, you know, even a 70-piece orchestra. So over eight evenings, uh, Melbourne Digital Concert Hall will be streaming a series of, it's what, 14 one-hour recitals live from the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne. Uh, and uh, the fact that the there's, what, a, a season ticket available, which means... Yeah. Uh, uh, and the money from that not only then kind of pays the orchestra, but pays people like a piano tuner, for example, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we, we wanted to set this up as a proper social enterprise. So first and foremost, the $20 ticket for a single concert or the $200 ticket for all the 14 concerts um, goes directly to the artists. So that's sort of really clean. But obviously, we wanted to support as much as we can the whole industry because it is, you know, the... the the musicians are the obvious choices. You know, everyone sees that the musicians have stopped work, but the people that, you know, are in charge of the lighting or tune the pianos, you know, or the stage managers, all those people have lost their jobs as well. And in many of the organisations, they're the first to go because, you know, the, the management looks at it and goes, well, we're not having concerts, so why do we need a production team? You know, the theatre's closed, so we don't need anyone to be making sure the lights are working and sweeping the stage. So we decided that we wanted to put a $4 fee in, first of all, to cover the credit card costs because um, we wanted the full $20 to go to the musician. And then the other part of it to go to all the other 
you know, parts of the industry that the industry doesn't work without, you know, texts and piano tuners, but it's perhaps not so much in the public eye or, you know, not quite so sexy to discuss. I, it's for me. It's one of the most important things uh, in the creative industries that we do acknowledge those people behind the scenes. Because yeah, so often the spotlight is on I don't know the the chief conductor or the solo artist or the uh, in theatre it's the director or the lead actor, um, the stage managers, the stage hands, the piano tuners, as you've said, uh, the people who are working behind the scenes to ensure that events can be staged uh, for our enjoyment. So important to acknowledge them. So great to know that Melbourne did. Digital Concert Hall is helping pay those people as well. Uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Chris Howlett, who's the co-director of Melbourne Digital Concert Hall, uh, which is supporting musicians and other members of the Melbourne arts industry during COVID-19 lockdown. If you jump online, melbournedigitalconcerthall.com, you can find out more information about the project. But coming up from tomorrow, Faces of Our Orchestras, an eight-night festival, uh, 14 one-hour recitals live from the Athenaeum Theatre. It's a pretty significant undertaking to do uh, this many concerts over a kind of over a kind of a pretty kind of like action-packed program. So uh, yeah, <laughs> how long did all yeah. this take to pull together? Yeah, look, it, it's funny. My wife uh, and I were having dinner last night after putting uh, one-year-old to bed, and she was sort of ninety percent joking, ten percent giving me that look that says, you know, everyone else's. Instagram is is full of you know husbands organizing you know uh, organizing Tupperware into shapes and sizes and creating box slides and I'm actually working probably you know 28 hours a day on this project at the moment because you know it's quite the opposite of the isolation lockdown that so many people are talking about or at least putting on their social media. But you yeah, look, um, we we made sure we wanted to make sure that it's fast and nimble. This this company, because I think as more challenges pop up, we need to be able to react quickly. Because you know, it, it, people's inc- if people's income stops overnight or relatively overnight, you need to be able to try and give them some sort of hope or income um, within two weeks. So you know, and, and that's sort of immediate and instant and real. So I mean, we from the initial idea to the first concert um, back in March it was 12 days and we um, I suppose our idea from uh, for the faces of our orchestra yeah, it took us about a week to get online which was uh, uh, as you mentioned a big undertaking there was lots of phone calls uh, organizing 40 musicians to uh, select a program and choose colleagues and you know then put it together in some sort of cohesive program so that it was, you know, attractive to buy that 14 concert pass. And that 14 concert pass, as we said, $200, all the money goes straight to the artists, or you can buy $20 tickets for an individual uh, recital. Uh, we've talked about some of the musicians. Do you just uh, quickly want to talk about some of the repertoire that's going to be played uh, from the 1st to the 8th of May in Faces of Our Orchestras? Yeah, absolutely. So we start with... Um, with Gail Bartrup and uh, from Concertmaster MCO, uh, sorry M- MSO, and as well as Chris Moore, Principal Viola from MCO, and David Berlin, Principal Cellist, and they're playing of Melbourne M- uh, Symphony, and they're performing a uh, a trio program predominantly, 
um, which is fabulous, um, of Dvorak and Schubert. Um, we then have Yi Wang from Sydney Symphony. Uh, Sydney Symphony. I've been up since four. My, my, sorry about that. My, uh, my son is teething. Um, we then have Yi Wang from Orchestra Victoria, and he's playing a French program of Funk and Debussy. And then we get uh, going into some really fun programming. You know, um, on the Saturday, we have the bass trombone and the principal tuba of Melbourne Symphony playing uh, a, a fun program of an arrangement. Um, we have trios of Brook and Brahms being performed. And these are the Brook and Brahms trios that aren't the piano trio reverse normal ones, but for clarinet and viola or horn and viola, which is fantastic. Um, we have harp and viola being performed as well as cello and bassoon concerts. So um, Jack Schiller, who is principal bassoon of Melbourne Symphony, and his partner Anna Picorni, who is a casual cellist with Orchestra Victoria and Melbourne Symphony. One of the things that they've been doing during isolation is um, has been playing duets that they perhaps wouldn't normally play together. Um, so they're bringing out that repertoire, which will be cool. Um, Plexus is coming to do an all-Australian program. Um, Plexus has uh, Monica Kuro and Philip and Stefan Kasamenov uh, to do an all-Australian contemporary program. So it's a really varied program over the 14 days, and they're just touching on some of the highlights. Um, because we wanted to make sure that, you know, everyone's musical interests were, you know, engaged and showcased from the musicians and also the audience. But also, if you do watch all 14 concerts, you get to experience and see these different musicians and where their different, you know, interests lie, even though they often sit in an orchestra just playing, you know, well, not just playing, sorry, playing a similar, you know, the same music altogether. For more information, jump online, www.melbournedigitalconcerthall.com. Uh, the series Faces of Our Orchestras uh, is 14 one-hour recitals live from the Athenaeum Theatre, held over the 1st to the 8th of May, so an eight-night festival of music presented by Melbourne Digital Concert Hall. A ticket for one recital is $20.00. Uh, goes straight to the uh, to the artists. Uh, tickets for the entire eight-day season, $200. And again, money goes straight to supporting the artists and the backstage crew as well. It's a significant and fantastic initiative that has raised a significant amount of money, over uh, $103,000 to date. So, as I said, melbournedigitalconcerthall.com for more info. I've been speaking with the co-director of Melbourne Digital Concert Hall, Chris Howlett. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here on Triple R. Absolutely. Thank you so much for letting us spread the word and supporting musicians uh, across Melbourne. I look forward to seeing how the, the event grows and... Uh, Particularly, once we all go back to normal, let me know how much you've raised in total and I'll very happily spruik that amount. Enjoy the rest of your day. Brilliant. Thank you and you too. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 